0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm
1: Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Uh, Michael, today um, we're going to talk about an issue that is uh, very topical and uh, one that a lot of people have kind of asked us what we think about it, uh, and that's just the issue of civility. Uh, We have. Or the lack thereof. Exactly, right. There's a lot of stories, a lot of examples, um, a lot of reason why people are, are thinking about this right now. You and obviously, I can't imagine
0: why that would be. Right?
1: <laughs> and obviously it's a pretty important issue for democracy. So today we have Timothy Schaefer, who's an assistant professor of communication studies at uh, Kansas State University in beautiful downtown Manhattan, Kansas. He's also the assistant director of the Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy at uh, K-State and also the editor of a new book, uh, <laughs> Crisis and Civility.
0: Uh, well, before we get to Professor Schaefer, uh, why do you think civility is important to democracy? Or, or let me put it this way. Do you think civility is essential to democracy? I do.
1: Why, why I is do. That? I think that uh, uh, civilization and civility uh, have the same root, the same Latin root, civitas. Uh, and it's hard to see how you can have... Uh, the former, and not have the latter, or whatever. You can't have civilization without civility, I guess. meaning,
0: Meaning what exactly?
1: Meaning, well, look, let's say that what it's not. Civility doesn't mean just being polite. It doesn't mean being nice. It means treating all your fellow citizens with a kind of mutual respect and actually civitas in latin does mean um refers back to citizenship it means befitting a citizen so i think it is um you know as long as we understand that civility means treating everyone with a kind of mutual respect then i do think it's necessary because you can't really have an argument then and without an argument you don't really have a democracy I think, you know, you don't have to agree. And as we've said, you know, many times, if you're going to have a democracy, you have to assume that disagreement is inescapable. But in the midst of that, we have to live together. And so the one way that we do that is by accepting the legitimacy of other people with points of views that are different from our own. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's worth noting with within governing institutions, like for example, within legislatures, within Congress, uh, there are all kinds of rules and norms that are intended to uh, preserve a sort of civility. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, to, it is, for example, a violation of. Uh, Con- of I can't remember if this is in the house is it is a violation of congressional rules to personally insult mm-hmm. another member of the chamber right right they always refer to one another as mister or Mr. or Mrs. right uh, and they'll often say, and
1: I think this is not a rule, but they will frequently refer to other people on uh, people on the other side of the
0: aisle as the, my good friend or the honorable, right. mm-hmm. Or even if they really can't stand really, them, right? And and, the, and these are all intended to introduce a, a measure of civility right. into our public discussions, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: right? I agree, and and the the, the book um, Crisis and Civility speaks exactly to this. We're in a new climate, and uh, uh, you know. Timothy's job is to to try to figure out how to get us out of it.
0: So uh, let's turn to Jenna uh, for the interview. Sounds good.
2: This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Tim Schaefer. Tim, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So civility is one of those terms that means something different to everyone, I think, and You've just edited a book on the topic that gives two definitions. One is civility as responsiveness, and the other is civility as politeness. Can you explain what those mean and how those two definitions might interact with each other?
3: Yeah, no, I, um, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. The longer answer to your relatively easy question is that we didn't necessarily say here is the the single notion, but in the the chapter that you referenced by uh, by Anthony Layden, who is a philosopher, he he lays out these um, these kind of two concepts of civility, and um, he he has this I think um, uh, important distinction between talking about civility as kind of politeness and then civility as as kind of responsiveness. Um, which is really helpful because uh, as someone who who studies this work and engages it in practical situations and settings, it's um, uh, it's important that we think about civility as being more than just kind of mining your manners or abiding by the rules or the expectations of kind of a dominant society. Uh, there have been some some really great recent articles, for example, about civility um, on, on NPR um, and they Some of the recent ones have really attended to one of the big concerns that we've had and that I personally have as someone who studies and researches this um, is that what does civility mean when we think about it through that kind of traditional paradigm of kind of politeness and being kind and courteous to folks? What does that mean to those who are on the margins or who are excluded from kind of the the dominant expression of a culture or society. So
2: I've seen a lot of calls on social media and elsewhere to revive civility. That's that's a hashtag I see all the time. And I'm wondering uh, how you can go about doing that, about reviving something, if there's no clear consensus about what civility is in the first place.
3: Yeah, and um, I I would say somewhat of an analog to that is the language of um, civic renewal, which gets used quite a bit um in in uh, the spaces that i exist in but it begs um uh for i think more consideration because if we're trying to revive something or right trying to renew something uh it presupposes that there there was something in the past and i think um part of the revive civility campaign um from the national institute for civil discourse i think is rooted more in this notion that we have in recent times seen the increases um, uh, in, in various studies and people's experience, right? So it's not just something we have to find from research, but people are, are, are recognizing, noticing that politicians, as well as just folks in their neighborhoods and in their communities, are really um, ratcheting up some of the, the kind of partisan divisions and and, and, and rancor. Uh, so for us to think about um, kind of reclaiming something, it's, it's more um, how do we step back a little bit from maybe this more kind of extreme precipice where we seem to be situated right now, rather than saying there was a a particular golden age um, of of civility. Because, I mean, and rightfully so, the critics of civility would say, yeah, we could, we could say we, we followed the rules and, and we kind of maintained uh, those expectations of how we would engage in, in public discourse or discussion, whether in Congress or elsewhere. But you know, there were only certain people who were doing that or who were allowed to do that. And so I think that, that critique is important. And this is part of what makes this work challenging. And in some ways, um, I think civility is um, not always my first uh, go-to or preferred term uh, for, uh, for what I do, because I think in the bigger sense, it's more about uh, civic life and engaging in kind of um, a a bigger notion of what it means to be able to collaborate and work across difference rather than simply saying, are we following the rules that we've um, either predetermined or have been determined for us from from outside forces?
2: What role does nostalgia play here? I think you could read... Calls to revive civility as coming from the same rhetorical playbook as Donald Trump's "Make America Great Again." So, how do you um, kind of get past that that feeling that we need to look backwards and move toward a more forward-looking view of civility?
3: yeah yeah i would I would totally agree um, and that could have been the third example there of that kind of sense of trying to reclaim something because then it becomes the question of like well okay, was the, the 1950s that were the good time who were who were the people that were benefiting and profiting and who were who were the who were the folks that were not even on on the map literally when we start talking about things like redlining and other and otherwise and so um, so for us, I think the the notion of uh, particularly this uh, this book you know a crisis of civility um, it did emerge. I should say, right, from work that the National Institute for Civil Discourse uh, recognized and supported with, um, uh, with external uh, support as well, right? So uh, lots of institutions saying that these are important questions to be asking right now um, and only, I would say, more timely since the time uh, that we were first meeting in uh, the spring of 2017, when the, the the origins of this book kind of took place, uh, because we 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 are seeing and continue to see right there's a there's this never ending cycle of where is the bottom um, for our current state of political discourse, but in fact we've we've seen some really significant impacts. So in Maine, for example uh they've uh gone through the next generation program and it has really transformed how legislators operate and engage uh with one another that in otherwise really contentious kind of partisan times uh here's a here's a path and opportunity for them to step back a little bit and reflect on you know who are they what are they doing um you know a lot of it's built around this notion of, of building trust right so if we can step back from this notion of thinking about uh, of politics as being on a team and i'm red and you're blue and And those kinds of things, then we have uh, the opportunity for uh, for more potential there. And so, the next generation program has been collaborating with um, the networks across the country for state legislators and all sorts of things. And it's been really exciting to see um, kind of blossom in some significant ways because I think um, even those in in elected office see that the issues that they're trying to champion and advocate for um, often require some degree of support from those who would be quote on the other side. And so. How do we help create some of those conditions for that to be more productive?
2: So you just mentioned two groups of people there, politicians and everyday citizens. Do you have a sense of where the need for civility and civil discourse is greater between those two groups?
3: I think this is one of the dilemmas that we face is that we're seeing it showing up in all of these environments, right? The um, the expectations, kind of the norms, um, if, you know, C-SPAN just celebrated its its anniversary just a couple of days ago, right? Um, and so I've been watching some of these historical clips of some of these more um, exciting exchanges between people, right? But, you know, there are expectations of how you operate in those deliberative bodies, you know, ideally those deliberative bodies. Um, and but so I think there's something that's really significant that needs to happen in that space because... Part of the, the process, with uh, w- the intensity of, of money in politics and gerrymandering, the factors that have put us kind of on this path to um, uh, solidifying more kind of extreme positions. I mean, we see it from, you know, from Pew and others, the, the kind of movement of, of the centers of these parties to, 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 to more polarized times. Uh, that that's very real. And at the same time, frankly, the space that I exist in and where I work and what I study is more localized. It's in communities, it's in um, local government settings. Uh, one of the projects that I'm working on right now uh, with a number of colleagues is, is really exploring what are possibilities at the local level with city managers um, and mayors, others uh, kind of at that level of, of politics is is really significant, but also even more than that for me is is exploring this in the, the kind of the third spaces, right? Uh, the the environments where people uh, are not in some official capacity, but are are simply, and, and I, I say simply, um, not as, as a, a derogative here, but it, it, it's important for us to say, how do we actually engage each other in um, everyday life and kind of everyday talk in in, in ways that are more respectful um, and, and civil, right so there's there are those terms, but also productive and also environments that are able to hold the the important tensions that exist in civic life. Uh, we've had recent discussions here um, in Kansas on the concealed handgun law that changed a, a couple years ago, right So there are really important topics that we need to be confronting and thinking about uh, but if we don't have, opportunities or the spaces to do that, uh, then I think we're really um, in, a, in a tough spot. And that's why the work that I do with the National Institute for Civil Discourse to me is so important because there's a this kind of national overlay that happens there, but also uh, with my appointment here at Kansas State University and our Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy is, is putting that into practice uh, both locally in the community where I am as well as statewide. We need to be engaging those who are these representatives uh, who kind of show up on the national landscape and talking about politics. But we also need to reclaim politics as something that we do in our communities, with people, in relationship. And when uh, I hear it quite a bit with, from students, they're like, oh, I'm not into politics, right? Because they only think about that as happening in, in Capitol buildings, whether it's in Topeka or uh, or Washington, D.C. But we need to, to to kind of recalibrate that um, in a significant way if, if we're going to kind of see ourselves out of the the, the times that we're in right now. So
2: something I think that's brought up as a critique of those deliberations you just mentioned is how do you turn those conversations into policy? The discussion in and of itself is good to help people develop a sense of empathy and maybe hear things from a different point of view, but I think people can also get turned off if they don't see those discussions leading to tangible changes. So how do you reconcile those two things and start to to bring together the, the act of deliberation with more substantive policy changes.
3: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, a few people come to mind and some projects, uh, and and I'll I'll speak to uh, a colleague of yours there at Penn State, John Gastel, um, who he he and many others uh, work in in efforts like the Citizens Initiative Review to embed these kinds of deliberative practices into formal policy processes. Um, So... You know, CIR uh, creates those kinds of conditions where ordinary people come together and uh, h- hear kind of expert testimony, kind of wrestle through ideas that are going to show up on a ballot initiative. And at the end of, of a few days, a very intensive few days uh, and a very structured few days, they come out and make these statements about how they have come to either agreement. Uh, and usually there's there's never kind of unanimity to Kind of uh, the, the decision, but there is an opportunity for us to see um, a framing of issues that is outside of just the kind of expert uh, paradigm, or that is uh, being communicated to us to us through advertising or whoever's got kind of funding. Um, you know, th- there are um, those types of things that um, that are that are happening. Um, that I think demonstrate the the possibility and but i i hear it quite a bit right especially when as i'm uh, working with with younger people and they are saying um so so what right so we've we've talked about this and i think that's an important thing for us especially as a field for dialogue and deliberation to to say how do we uh uh, translate this kind of everyday talk into actual policy um, decisions And, and and maybe i'll offer This is not a contemporary example, but a historical one, because I think it it makes this point. Uh, One line of my research looks at the 1930s and 40s, a program that was run through the USDA and through the land grant uh, and cooperative extension system. So they created these discussion guides on a whole host of topics, things like soil erosion and taxes and imports, um, tensions between urban and rural communities, all of these types of things. and, and in one breath, that was done um, simply as a chance for people to to, to engage in discussion. One of the, the leaders of the project uh, talked about uh, discussion being the archstone of democracy, right? Uh, but they also paired that with uh, a formal process that was being done at the time uh, for land use planning, right? So the people who were part of the land use planning uh, boards, if you will, at the local level that then had influence on regional and state and then uh, finally kind of national policy were grounded in these kind of deliberative and kind of dialogic principles. So when we think about that that bridge between um, kind of everyday talk and, and policy decisions, I think it's really important for us to, to say, how do we actually, do some of that. Sometimes talk is really important, and that's where the expectation should reside, that we need to just understand either one another or the topic before we just immediately move to action. But that bridging to policy, I think, is a really important concern. And if we have opportunities to formalize that, and, and in fact, a lot of that can happen at local levels, right? So you can have a, a level of buy-in uh, from, say, a city uh, council, in contrast to, say, uh, a, a state legislative body. Um, and and for me, that point of entry is much more um, both accessible but also possible and in, in really significant ways.
2: I'm reminded uh, of a conversation that we had on this show uh, earlier this season with Jonathan Haidt. Uh, we talked about um, free expression of ideas, and he cites uh, Mills on Liberty, which I believe you cite in, in your book as well, and, and I'm wondering what the right balance is between civility and free expression. And how do you set up environments where people can express their ideas freely, but in a civil way?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a hugely important um, issue. And I mean, it, it can be seen as this tension. And in my, in my mind, this is where um, uh, process really matters, right? So uh, an element of, of um, the work that I do here at Kansas State with our, our Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy. We have established ground rules that we utilize uh, in virtually any kind of public discussion or setting. And uh, it you know it speaks to uh, some, some themes like seeking understanding, expect and explore conflicting viewpoints, right giving people opportunities to speak, but also listen respectfully and thoughtfully, offer and examine support for those claims, right? So it can be experiential or it can be some kind of data point that's outside of your own kind of lived experience. But it's important to um, to acknowledge that and, and you know, appreciating communi- communication differences, things like that. The tension between um, free speech and this notion of civility, I don't think has to be kind of, it, it, it's over here or it's over there. Uh, the the capacity to create conditions for kind of expression of contentious views is really important. Uh, I think where we start to to see some rub is the, the, the expectation of kind of quote safe spaces, um, where if, if people are feeling uncomfortable or, or maybe even challenged or attacked, that, you know, if we set that as a ground rule, for example, that, that is going to become a very significant tension that we have to acknowledge. And so for me, I, 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 I don't actually use that language of 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 saying uh, this would be a a safe space because our public life is not safe for many of us. And I think um, we we need to step into that and wrestle with that and acknowledge it and then figure out how do we engage in um, some conversation that uh, is 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 helpful and and constructive in significant ways, but it doesn't necessarily have to be um, uh, restrictive in those ways. With all that yeah with and and but with all that said, right, there are some baselines that we have to abide by beyond saying like you know expect con- conflict and give people chances to speak. if you don't acknowledge my um right to exist as a human, that doesn't work very well right that's that's outside of those kind of bounds, and that's partly why we need to have some of this when people are just kind of yelling and lobbying um you know a- attacks at one another that's that's not helpful um. And at the same time, how do we how do we step into some environment, whether it's, you know, literally face to face in a conversation or it's online or whatever the the venue might be um, that gets us out of the uh, the ability uh, to just kind of attack each other. And that's for me where I think the dialogue deliberation work becomes really important.
2: I don't think anyone would disagree that when it comes to civility, President Trump is a model of what not to do. Um, so given that, who do you point to as a model for how people should behave when it comes to practicing civility in politics?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Um, and it's it's funny, I don't have an immediate go-to as kind of like, here's the classic example of someone who ought to be our kind of exemplar. But, uh, uh, you know, just given the, the state of things uh, as they have been recently, and it seems like it will continue for a bit. I will point to someone like, you know, Senator John McCain um, as um, someone, and 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 we've seen this from a lot of figures who, who have now left elected office in uh, in recent years. Uh, is the, the the notion that you can still have um, you can have your strong views, but you can engage and, and recognize uh, when uh, you you need to to give a little bit or also when you might be wrong. Um, you know David Brooks kind of famously not too long ago came out and wrote an essay on reparations and basically said, yeah, what I used to think, I don't think that anymore right And we're not often um, afforded the, the opportunity to see people in public life step back and say that thing that I thought strongly about, Previously, I've taken in more information. I've reflected on it. I've thought about it, and now I I come to this place. Uh, we don't have a lot of good examples of that, honestly, and I think that's that's part of our dilemma. Um, so that's you know part of back to your comment earlier about you know what are we trying to revive or what are we trying to reclaim? Uh, I, I I think there's um, a desire to to get to to some level of normalcy uh, n- normal behavior in this kind of environment of of a, frankly, a new normal uh, as it as it seems to be.
2: So I'm reminded to an episode uh, that we did last year with Laurie Mulvey, who directs the World in Conversation program at Penn State. The episode is called A Conversation About Conversation. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but Laurie, in that episode, talked about the need for facilitators in these discussions as a way to maintain that sense of civility and you know help people appreciate other perspectives. And I'm curious uh, what role you think facilitators play in deliberative democracy
3: having kind of the conditions for informal everyday political talk is really important. Uh, right. And, and increasingly we're losing kind of those third spaces where people do that. Um, we, we talked about libraries a little bit ago, you know, there's that new book palaces for the people, um, that, um, that argues why we need kind of social infrastructure, if we're going to think about things like social capital. And for me, that all is, um, part of our conversation about kind of a civic ecosystem, um that we need to have opportunities for just the 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 daily interactions with neighbors, those that we work with that show up if we show up in places like churches on the weekends, right? Those kinds of environments. That's really important. Um but I would I would I would agree right with the, the point that facilitators are really important and really helpful if we are going to um to get to that level of having kind of discussion be constructive and engaging in the ways that are um, essential and necessary for for democratic life. And so that's one of the things that is built into almost everything that I I teach. I teach both undergraduate and graduate students. I direct a a program uh, called Dialogue Deliberation and Public Engagement. So it's a professional certificate program. Uh, And we've had people from federal and state agencies, people from the non-profit world, uh, j- as well as, you know, just kind of ordinary folks in communities who are interested in really learning the different process models and frankly, how to facilitate that. Um, so I think the role of facilitators is an essential one. And I'll borrow a phrase, a colleague of mine, uh, Martin Carcasson at Colorado State, um, he, he has been using and kind of coined uh, with Leah Sprain, um, who's now at, at Boulder, but Uh, passionate impartiality, right? So this uh, role of facilitators being passionate. I mean, this is going to sound slightly silly, but right passionate about process, passionate about democratic practices actually being put into play and realized with people. And at the same time, um, recognizing that if you're going to pull that off, You need to do it in a way that has you stepping back from being kind of a participant and a contributor to that conversation. So I have really strong views. I have a file cabinet with bumper stickers from many years that lives in a closet at home because I choose not to have it in my office here because part of what I do and what I teach is not um, being that person, right? Necessarily being that kind of advocate for the things that I, I feel strongly about. But what I do uh, and many others in this world uh, of dialogue and deliberation, uh, wh- what we do is is prepare students and others to, to use this work.
2: So, Tim, we're going to end now, as we always do, with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. So thinking specifically about American politics, what makes you angry?
3: I think the uh, the level of acceptance that what is happening right now is um, is how we ought to let things be.
2: What makes you proud?
3: that there are people who are investing a lot of time and energy and resources into trying to cultivate a more democratic um, expression of, of shared life. What makes you worry? <laughs> the first question, um, the, 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 the sense that, um, that as I experience uh, being in a classroom and I have small children, that the, the, the way that they um Hear and consume news about politics is the only way that they think it might exist, and that they don't have um, good examples of alternatives to kind of the the new normal.
2: And finally, what gives you hope?
3: The fact that, um, in spite of the significant challenges, that in the most basic way, um, if we are to live well with one another, we need to um, recognize humanity in people, and I'm, I am see that and I experience it when you actually get to a place of creating these kinds of opportunities for democratic discussion. There's a space where people, um, even though they have strong animosity towards the views that someone else might hold, they can see underneath that a bit of the, the veneer and uh, recognize that there's some humanity underneath there.
2: All right. Well, we will leave it there. Tim, thank you so much for helping us understand uh, what civility is and how we can all practice it uh, in our everyday discourse. So thanks for joining us on Democracy Works.
3: I appreciate it. Thanks so much.
0: Well, that was certainly very interesting, but I do feel like we need to address the elephant in the room.
1: And that elephant would live at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania
0: Avenue. Uh, the one who called his sec- his uh, former secretaries of State uh, dumb as a rock.
1: Yeah, yeah. Timothy is it was a little reluctant to you know to call that out, but I I just don't think it's impo- it's impossible to talk about a decline in civility well, without well, talking. About well, that Trump. is the question. The president is the only person in United States politics that 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 everyone votes for. And it's the only one that really represents the United States of America in, in as a single person. And um, what he or she does and says matters in terms of the climate of the culture, the political culture at large. And so it's unrealistic to think that the behavior of the commander-in-chief, you know, the occupier of the bully pulpit, is not going to affect the behavior and attitudes about of ordinary citizens.
0: Well, and it's also the fact that he relies for presidential communications on a medium which is sort of designed to be uncivil.
1: Um, well, or at least it it it, it facilitates incivility. It, at least it
0: facilitates right. it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Twitter is not really a great place to have
1: a thoughtful discussion. Thoughtful discussion. <laughs> People do it and i admire them for it but yeah it's 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 hard
0: it does but it also lends itself to trolling and to sure. insults and mm-hmm. and this is his preferred means right. of communication yeah. with, uh, with, his metier. American, <laughs> with with the american people uh are we seeing the effects are we seeing trickle down effects do you think from i the think president? absolutely
1: we are i mean you know um whether or you know there are there's i saw a study that said that where uh, Trump has had rallies, there's been an increase in terms of hate crimes right in, in and, those communities right in those yeah, communities yeah, uh, and and so that would be the most extreme level. It's hard to believe that this doesn't have an impact right if the pres if it's okay for the president to talk this way, why is it not okay for me to talk this way? I don't know what what the answer to that is. I think it's only fair um, for us to bring up um, the issue of incivility on that, that the right r- routinely brings up, which is, you know, uh, Maxine Waters and others in the in the Democratic House arguing that it's okay to interrupt the dinner of Kristen, what's her name, Nielsen? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, and, um, and others, and others, and others. Sarah Sanders, yeah. yeah. And
0: I remember when Jonathan Haidt was here a few a uh, few weeks ago, he made a point of saying that's wrong. Right. Right, and it's hard to argue with that. Right,
1: and so the the argument, you know, or the this the kind of line that I think needs to be made here is, you know, whatever whenever you think circumstances justify you being uncivil, you should be damn sure that that's an appropriate response, and understand that you what it is you are risking in order to do that. Right, so you know, there are all people who would say, look you know, the Trump administration is putting children in cages. Therefore, incivility is justified. There are people who would say, you know, abortion is murder of a child. Therefore, incivility is justified. You know, there are people who would, who are quite ready to make that judgment. All I'm saying is I think you ought to make darn sure that you are um, understanding the consequences of your action if you do that. So I think it is it is uh, interesting and in this context relevant to to talk about what uh, Tim and others are doing about this, right? It, they're they're coming up with these you know revive civility campaigns and other efforts to bring citizens into um, you know new mechanisms by well, which reviving, they can talk
0: to each other. Reviving suggests old mechanisms. Yeah, that's right. Re- reviving suggests bringing back well, something from the past.
1: That's true. They're trying to do new ways to bring back what they thought was yeah. better established in in eras
0: past. Yeah. So make America great by reviving <laughs> civility. Yeah, I don't think they would. I don't think Timothy <laughs> would would frame it that well, way. Well, I'm I'm being I'm being somewhat facetious. Yeah. But but. It- But part of my point about changes in the party system and the way people have sorted themselves out is that just talking about going back to the past might be a little bit unrealistic. I think that's right. We're we're in a different age. Mm -hmm. We're we're in an age not only of entirely different kinds of technologies, Mm -hmm. as we've talked about, uh, but also a party system that is, under its current design, accentuates the divisions among people and therefore makes it all the more difficult.
1: It makes these efforts... You know, um, deliberative efforts seem so minimal, you know, I mean, you know, you're you're it's just a tiny little effort when, you know, the, the bullhorn, the megaphone of the presidency is just always and and so loudly pushing in the other direction. So, I mean, it just remains to be seen. Um, clearly the issue is not going away and it seems like there's a lot here I mean we may want to address this you know again going forward because I I do think that people it's something that people are concerned about and I don't know that we have any real idea as to how we get out of this right I mean you know the one thing Timothy Schaefer and others are doing is is saying well here's here's a strategy see what you think of this
0: well, a uh, important topic. We'll be back to it, and our thanks to uh, Timothy for uh, raising these issues,
1: and to uh, Jenna for a, yet another really uh, terrific interview.
0: So, uh, from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Michael Burke, and I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.